0: Amen. Please turn to Revelation 22. It's life in the new earth. That's the name of the sermon. And we'll only deal with three verses tonight and a lot of other verses too. I'm going to be dealing with a lot of verses, so I think what would be the easiest thing to do would be for me just to tell you where I'm going and then read the passage to you, instead of try- you trying to keep up with it. That would probably be the easiest thing. Uh, because th- the Scriptures are going to make a lot of sense. You just, uh, you'll, they're self-explanatory as we get there. And uh, we'll be mostly just reading them. So, uh, by way of review, let's just read the first two verses of Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And that's a very important uh, subject there. The throne, of the, the throne of God and of the Lamb, we'll talk about that tonight. Through the middle of the streets of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So that's where we've been. Now new material, let me read that to you. Verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will have no need of a lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So as we saw in verses 1 and 2, the source of Life in the New Jerusalem is the river called the water of life and the tree of life. We've already seen it's a picture of a garden, the Garden of Eden, and all it was intended to be. It is the Garden of Eden spread over all the earth, an earth without sin, an earth that's been changed and transformed back into uh, what it was and what it was intended to be, although the providence of God had things work this way. And uh, we see everything done like it was supposed to be by Adam. And where Adam failed, Christ, the second Adam, prevailed. So i would really indebted to two sources tonight. That um, I'm so indebted to them that I really need to, to give them credit at the beginning. Uh, my friend Max Donner, who was up in Oregon and wrote a two-volume set. And then, of course, uh, a G.K. Beale who I really don't know except to say hi. <laughs> he preached in the church here once, so there you go. Um, there shall be, verse 3, there shall be no more curse. Adam sinned brought all the suffering we see in this present world. And we can think of all the things that we will enjoy in heaven, but think of all the things that are not going to be there that's going to bring us joy. See that, that's a, It's a double-edged sword in a good way. So the curse is found in Genesis 3. I'll not go over that again. We've studied it in depth uh, in our Wednesday study. Uh, We've been there in our Roman study too, so I think you're well familiar with that. But uh, suffice it to say, the curse brought tremendous loss and um, it brought misery, suffering, heartache, decay, and death. And the curse is the explanation for all that has gone wrong in this earth. The curse, the biggest curse being sin itself, and sin will be no more. So people often think of Christianity as a list of do's and don'ts, things that we can do, things that we're not allowed to do. And uh, it, it's true that there are do's and don'ts. Of course there are. And, uh, but the prohibitions, therefore, are good. Just look at the misery people bring upon themselves by the things that they do, and the messes that they get into, and the intertwined personal relationships. And uh, yesterday, I, I saw a man. It was just sad. Before the ladies' breakfast, I didn't mention it to the ladies, because <laughs> the the issue was pretty much over by then. But th- there was a fellow. It was just sad to see this fellow in this kind of a state. Don't usually see it around here as much? He was. Um, just spending time in the middle of, of Grove Avenue, just yelling at cars and screaming at cars, and, and cars were honking to, to, you know, for him to get out of the way, and that was just making him even more angry. And you could just see he was just totally out of his mind, just, just gone, you know. I've seen that down in Hollywood, but um, to see it here was kind of shocking to me. You know, well, you know, the misery that sin brings... And people think that uh, it's going to make them happy, the pleasures of sin for a season. And we'd be wrong to think that there isn't pleasure in the moment, but the long-term consequences are, are horrendous. And, of course, to be without God is the worst thing of all. So, you know, uh, we, you know we get accused of um, being killjoys, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know. And and it is possible to have a a conscience that is too scrupulous, that is possible. We need to make sure that our conscience is trained by the Word of God, and and, uh, that uh, we we realize what is Christian liberty and and what is sin. We need to realize that. But you know what? In the new heaven and the new earth, the new cosmos, we're not going to need to worry about any of that. All that will be gone, we will be sanctified, we will be glorified. We won't even need our conscience any longer. Our conscience is quite helpful today, but it also can be a source of needless pain, you know. But, um, you know, it's not going to be there. It's going to be perfection, you know. So thank the Lord for the voice of conscience. That's good. But in the new heaven and new earth, we won't have to worry about that. We won't be too scrupulous or too libertine in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, as we get back to the text, There's four things prominent in the new earth. And so we're going to spend time on each one of them. Four things prominent on the new earth. Notice the throne of God and of the Lamb. And uh, we've seen visions of that throughout Revelation. The myriads and myriads of angels and men gladly worshiping the Lamb. Um, It just says in Revelation 5.11 for instance. Revelation 5.11, Then I looked and I heard around the throne And the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor, glory and might forever and ever." Another scripture. I'm, I'm, you know, listen, listen to carefully what's being said here, because there's something that uh, I think I've come across by these other men uh, that I've never thought of before. I think it's kind of profound. Revelation 7:17, 7, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He'll guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. Uh, I think what is being said, and um, Beal... Agreed with this, and and so did uh, Donner. Uh, that uh, it appears there'll be one throne, you know, one throne, which is interesting because I've always pictured it in my mind since a child of of God on His throne and, and Christ sitting next to Him on a different throne at the right hand of God. But um, there's a scripture, and I'll be reading you another few that appear to be somehow and probably because of the Trinity and the mystery of all of that that there's one throne there. There, So, Revelation 321, the one who conquers, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. Revelation 21, 22, speak of the temple of the Lord God Almighty and of the Lamb. Revelation 21, along with 23, were very important foundations of the Trinity, And, uh, oh, I need to read them to you. Revelation 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun and moon to shine in it. Uh, Whoops, let me go a little further. Let me down to verse 3 again um, of 22. And no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb, will be in it. So, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing that I had never thought of before. So since it's a fairly new thought with me, um, I wouldn't mind being challenged on it. But it well could be that there's somehow, in some way, there's one throne for father and son, with the son on the right hand of the father on, I don't know, I haven't figured it out yet. Maybe that's some of the things that we just have to mysteriously learn about in heaven. Well, with all that being said and done, it's been said that the greatest government on earth would be a wise king who puts the needs of his subjects above everything else. Instead of caring about himself, instead of caring about uh, this or that or the other thing, he cares about his subjects and is benevolent and kind and wise um, yeah, Probably better than even democracy. Democracy is probably the best thing that actually is ever going to exist. But if you had a king that was wise and kind and benevolent and did all things well and, and cared about his subjects more than he cared about himself, that would be a tremendous government to live under. It's never happened. It's going to happen. Okay, The Lord Jesus Christ, the great monarch. And um, we, you know, uh, there's an old saying, and it's true. I, I believe this to be true. It's not in the Bible, but I believe it's true. It says uh, that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And because of our sin nature, I believe that that's true. Um, the lesson we learn from history is that men will become tyrants, but not with God, and not in the new cosmos. It'll be the greatest thing ever. There'll be no revolutions. There'll be no um, you know, problems of all the kinds of things we see in politics. There'll be no politics, even, because there'll be a king <laughs> that lives forever. Some people like that. I just saw so I looked out there. His servants will worship God and Lamb in perfection. And uh, we'll serve as priests in the New Jerusalem. And uh, as we go back to the text again, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it his servants will worship Him. His servants will worship God and the Lamb in perfection. And will serve as priests in the new Jerusalem. Isaiah 61.6 6. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. Now, excuse me, now getting back to Revelation 22, verse 3, um, the Greek word is laturo, Laturo means worship, which is the chief way in which we will serve. Okay, We will serve Him as worshipers. Serving Him will be light work full of joy. Serving Him will be a pleasure with no pain attached. Serving Him will energize us and not drain us. Serving God will have true and lasting meaning. I can't explain how that's going to be, but it will be For what is good, or what good is it to serve if there's no benefit at all? There's great honor and value in work. It's true that work can be difficult because of the fall. It's the sweat of the brow, you know, and we scrape by with the sweat of our brow, with weeds and thorns, literally, if that's your job, or figuratively, if that's your job. The greatest job in the world has its difficulties and pains and sorrows. But not in the new Earth. in the new cosmos. what we do will fill us with delight. We'll find satisfaction in our work. That's a satisfaction we could never find in this world. Well you know, even when we find satisfaction in our work, sometimes we do it to the detriment of our families. Sometimes we do it to the detriment of other things that we should be doing. It's very possible for us to do that, to take something good and turn it into something bad, not in the new cosmos we'll realize that we have finally found our true calling and purpose and our souls will be satisfied with the work god gives us to do and serving him will be our greatest pleasure you yeah. know so look forward to that day you think about that sometimes i mean let's face it sometimes we get weary sometimes we get weary even doing the things that are good you know and sometimes people get discouraged i've i've heard people get discouraged and I'm always a little concerned when I hear, hear people say something like this. Well, I do everything and no one else seems to do anything around here. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a problem just waiting to happen. You don't know, you find yourself feeling that way. Take a step back you know, and just kind of relax. Because uh, that's just not a, a good way to go about things at all. That means that something's wrong. We're either taking too much upon ourselves or thinking too much about ourselves. We, we all have a tendency to do it. We just do. You know, so we need to be careful. Third of all, third of all, a close face-to-face relationship with God. You know what it says here in verse number three again. Uh, it says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and uh, some you know their servants and their worshipers, and they will see his face. And they will see his face. Matthew 5.8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, the Bible tells us plainly that no one can see God and live. It tells us in Exodus 33. You can't see God and live. The, the glory of God uh, amongst sinful beings would just uh, evidently obliterate us. You know, and Moses was held in the cleft of the rock to protect him from God. But we're told that more than a few times in the Old Testament, the sinf- we are sinful and the burning holiness of God would consume us in an instant. But that's the wonder of the Incarnation, isn't it? The amazing thing about the Incarnation, the wonderful fact that Christ reveals God the Father to us. So much so he can say, he that's seen me has seen the Father. They will see his face, though. means even more than that. Um, I don't usually quote John MacArthur, but this was a good one. Let me give you a long quote from John MacArthur that I think uh, he really got this right. He says, In heaven, since we'll be free from sin, we'll see God's glory unveiled in His fullness. That'll be a more pleasing, spectacular sight than anything we've known or could ever imagine on earth no mere earthly pleasure can even begin to measure up to the privilege and the ecstasy of an unhindered view of the divine glory. And then he goes on, I told you it's an extended, um, extended quote. Matthew 5.8 says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He goes on to say the Greek verb translated see, horao, is in a tense that denotes a future continuous reality. In Heaven we will continually be seeing God. Kings generally seclude themselves from direct contact with their people. It's a rare privilege to have an audience with a king. But believers in Heaven will forever have perfect, unbroken fellowship with the King of Kings." That's good theology. Very good theology. Well, John MacArthur's a good theologian too in in so many ways. Well, the question's unsettled in my mind again, I have to say. Sometimes we're talking about things that uh, we'll just have to wait and see how they go, you know. But um, we know we'll see the Son, and we know we'll see the Son in His glorified body. I've often said that we won't see the Father, but now I wonder if there's not a Son, because He's pure spirit, you know. So I've always said that we'll not see the Father, we'll see the Son, which means that we see the Father through the Son. And that could be it. Or it could simply be uh, the Father uh, will be, it'll be the radiance of His glory that we'll see. The glory that will extend throughout the entirety of the new cosmos, as we'll see in a moment. So again, like I say, there's a lot of things here. Uh, John's telling us what he sees, and we're being told kind of what we can understand. But uh, there's going to be a lot of surprises in Heaven when we see how much better it is than we think that it will be. Yeah. So, The Trinity is a great mystery, by the way. And um, that's something that the book of Revelation, though, has revealed to us again and again and again. In fact, uh, it's interesting, the, the book of Revelation, uh, almost every Bible titles it the, the Vision of John or The Revelation of John. Uh, but um, actually... The book gives its own name. It says, The Revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, verse 1. Okay. Now, his name shall be on their foreheads. Okay. That's an interesting one. His name shall be on their foreheads. It's an allusion to the priesthood. The priest in the Old Testament, the high priest, wore a holy to the Lord on his forehead. In fact, you can see this in Exodus 28, 36-38. I'll just read it, emphasizing parts of it. Exodus 28, verse 36. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by the cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban, and it shall be on Aaron's forehead. Okay, now... um, Remember, the tabernacle and the temple on earth were types and pictures of the reality that exists in heaven and will exist for all eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. The high priest represented Israel to God. Once a year he'd go into the Holy of Holies and he was representing Israel to God. And only the high priest could enter the most holy place. But think about this. We're going to live in the most holy place, which has actually overtaken creation in the new heaven and the new earth. It's the place where God dwells, and dwells uh, intimately. You know, you could go to the temple in the Old Testament, and of course, God has always been omnipresent. He's always been everywhere in His universe at the same time. But the temple is the place that the, you would assemble to, to meet with God, so to speak, you know. Well, we're going to live in the most holy place, which is overtaken all of creation, you know. And another analogy we've seen in Revelation is the relation between the mark or the seal put upon God's people and the mark of the beast. And almost everybody knows about the mark of the beast. How many times have I said that in this series? But uh, the mark that's been put upon the people of God, the seal that's been put upon the people of God, very, very important. Uh, let's just re- read you. Let me read you a few scriptures. I'll just turn there real fast. Uh, Revelation seven, verse three, just to jog your memory. Okay. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Nine four is going to say pretty much the same thing. Nine four. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And then 14.1 talks about the same thing. Then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Not literally, of course, but figuratively speaking. They belong to God. And this is taking place in the present time. And the 144,000, but the only time you hear about them usually is um, from Jehovah's Witnesses. They, they like to talk about the 144,000. Uh, but really, it's just uh, 12 times, 12 times 1,000. That's what it is. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints multiplied, you know. And uh, that's the 144,000. So the next time a Jehovah Witness comes to your door asking about the 144,000, and then blow his mind or her mind by telling him, you know what? I'm one of the 144,000, and uh, they'll either fall down to worship you, <laughs> but probably not. They'll probably get really angry that you could say such a thing. You know, they they won't like that. So, but it's true. It's true. You know, it's figurative speaking, and it's a truth. Not only are those verses there. But um, Revelation 3.12, so much of the churches in Asia, if we were to really go back and spend the time to look at the churches of Asia again, the seven churches, I'm not going to do that, I don't believe. But to really do that, once you've made it through the book, you realize, you know, the seven churches have basically told us what's going to happen throughout the entire book. You put it all together and you just see a a massive picture. Well, Revelation 3.12, the one who conquers... I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall never go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. And there it is in Revelation 3.12. Easy to miss that kind of thing until you've made it all the way through and seen the imagery that's been taking place. That imagery in Revelation is just, not only is it cyclical, in the way that it comes to us, but it's repetitive in the way that uh, the same images are being used. And then it goes back into Isaiah, goes back into Ezekiel, goes back into Jeremiah, goes back into various other prophets, too, and really ties together these kind of things. One more point about the forehead, what we're talking about. What do we do with our heads? Well, we think, right? It's where our thoughts come from? Well, thoughts come from the heart, yeah, but, but really it's the brain that is, is doing these things, all tied together, as we're a unit there. Um, with no sin to interfere, with perfected bodies and renewed minds, we'll be able to understand and to think properly about God. And the idea of the forehead has to do with the fact that we'll have God at the forefront of our thoughts. And this is pictured to us. Let me take us to Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you want to turn there, I'll give you a moment to turn to it. It's a longer passage, so I don't want to just race through this. But I had so many scriptures I just didn't want us to spend all night doing Bible drills. But Deuteronomy chapter 6, very familiar but a very important passage here. Okay, Deuteronomy 6. Hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today will be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you're in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Now note this, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So, we're talking about something that uh, was then taken literally uh, by the Pharisees and such like that. Not that it was wrong to do that, but it was wrong to do it as they did it as a show, uh, making their phylacteries large so that everybody could see the the scriptures that they had, you know, and placed in the phylacteries on their head. Uh, Well, you know, we should be meditating on the Lord's Word, as often as we possibly can, you know. It's a good, when you lie down in bed, think about the Lord and His Word. When you get up in the morning, think about the Lord and His Word. If you, well, I won't go further than that. There's about any time you could. Just about any time you can and all times we should. I hope you have a, a daily devotional time, one that works for you. A time that you can actually get away for 15 minutes maybe to read the Word of God. Uh, if you can do it longer, that's great. But 15 minutes, just a day, every day. you know, And if you miss a day, guess what you do. You go to the next day. <laughs> that's what you do. Yeah, just, you just keep going. That's what you do. And um, it, it's a great practice, and it will become a habit. It will become something that you can do naturally if you start. But you're going to have to start, and you're going to have to keep at it. They tell us it takes about 30 days to develop a good habit or a bad habit. (laughs) 30 days, you know. So you can do that. You know, Just, just do it, and you'll be glad that you did. Well, life in a sinful world can be messy, and we find our thoughts betray us. We focus on the wrong things. We even focus on good things in the wrong way. Our thinking's clouded, it's dark, it's often confused. In a practical sense, it's hard to concentrate as we should. Our minds will wander even in prayer. Maybe I should say our minds will wander especially in prayer. However, occasionally, we'll find that in worship or some other time, we can have a monumental experience of God that feels like we've been lifted up to heaven. I've had that happen a few times, but very few, truthfully. But just a monumental time. An experience that maybe even changes things for you to such an extent. Well, if we do get a rare glimpse of the glory of God like that, it's usually only for a short time. And then we're distracted once again what happens. Well, in the new earth, our thinking will be removed. We won't have brain fog. Instead, we'll reach the potential that God gave us for our minds that sin has robbed us of. You know, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. If you ever come in for counseling, you, you probably heard me pray that before we started a counseling session. Well, that's because we need to do that. We can't trust in our own wisdom. We need to ask God for His wisdom. And so sometimes we simply don't know what to do, but God can tell us what to do and He'll tell us through His Word. You know. We need God's wisdom In the new earth, we'll have God's wisdom. Okay, Just a couple more things then. Just a couple more things. I was going to go on to verses 6 and 7, but decided not to tonight since we were dealing with so many verses. So let me just camp just a little bit here on uh, one more thing. Uh, No night there. No night there. That seems simple enough, doesn't it? Well, I think there's something to be learned here. It's not the first time we've been told this. And night will not be, sorry, and night will be no more. They will have no need of light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign with him forever and ever. Let me just comment on reign with him forever and ever. You know, we're going to judge angels. I don't know how that happens. I don't know what it's all about. But I do know that Jesus told us that we would judge angels. And so. These are, are remarkable creatures, far more powerful than any of us. Far more powerful than, than we can even imagine. But uh, this is something that the Lord's going to do. He didn't make angels to be his vice regents in heaven. People, sinful people like us, transformed by God's grace himself to be his sons and daughters. So they will reign with him forever forever and ever. Well, no night there. Let's look at that one. No night there. You know, because of God the Lord uh, being our lamp and our light. And we're going to see that, the Bible tells us that in many places. Isaiah 60 verse 19. Isaiah 60 verse 19. The sun shall be no more, your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. And so, that's kind of an amazing thing, you know. We're at that time of year. I can see outside; you can't, but I can see outside right now, and I can see that it's dark. You know, here it is. Just a little after 5:30, and it's already dark. And when you were getting to church, it was getting dark already. It's very strange, this strange time of year, you know, switching away from daylight savings time. And um, I try to get up about six thirty, or sometimes seven, if I decide to sleep in. That's what I like to do. And it's dusk around that time. The sun's an influence, but it's not the bright shining day. And you're going to notice before we get to Christmas time that by five o'clock, it's going to be dark. It's already going to be dark. It's about 4.30 even, you know. Uh, and um, we begin to see the, that uh, happen. But this is figurative language. We don't need to literally believe that there is no sun or stars or moon or any of these things that they cease to exist. We don't have to believe that. There's no night in heaven because we'll dwell in the presence of God no matter where we go. And although God is omnipotent, we will know the light of his presence fully in the new cosmos. It's figurative language, and it speaks of safety, security, and fellowship. That's what no night there means safety, security, and fellowship. And, uh, you know, the world can be a dangerous place at night. That's still true. And we light up the city with streetlights and everything like that, you know. Wow, you know you have to really go out into the middle of the desert or something to get a sense of this of how dark darkness is you know and how scary it can be and how alone you can feel in all of that've we've, we've shielded ourselves from from that kind of feeling, you know the way that uh, we have uh, created society here, and we 're lit up all the time, you know, uh, but uh, you know, and that's okay that's okay but Dark can be a very dangerous place. You just don't know what's there, you know. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And so it can be very, very dangerous, you know, that kind of thing. Well, not in heaven, not in the new heaven, not in the not in the new cosmos. It's figurative language talking about safety, security, and fellowship. In the Old Covenant, to look upon God's face would have been death. Exodus thirty-three twenty, 20 God says, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Beale says this, nothing from the old world will be able to hinder God's glorious presence from completely filling the new cosmos or the saints' unceasing access to the divine presence. What? Powerful statement if you think about what Beale's saying. I'll read it again. Nothing from the old world will be able to hinder God's glorious presence from completely filling the new cosmos or the saints' unceasing access to the divine presence. In Christ and the new covenant that morphs into the eternal state, we shall glory in his glory. A few more scriptures. And then we'll be done. Talking about this no night there and the glory of the light of God. It's found in a lot of places. I just picked a few. It's found in the ironic Blessing. You know and a lot of times we will use that as a benediction. And the ironic Blessing says the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. That's what we're talking about. You know. Psalm 4.6 says, Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. It's the cry of the psalmist. Psalm 31.16, Still the cry of the psalmist. Make your face shine us, oh sorry, make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Psalm 67, 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us. And make His face to shine upon us. These these are cries and blessings that come from a fallen world. But you know what? In the new cosmos, we will have those blessings. And we won't even have to ask for them, because we'll already have them. These are the blessed promises that await us in the new Jerusalem. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, you can say so much in such a a small context. And we could have fleshed this out even more. Others have. They've fleshed this out in even greater detail. But Father, I pray that you've given us a sense of what awaits those that know you, those that love you, those that have been chosen by you from the foundation of the world. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, or entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those that love Him. Father, this is the great place to which we're heading. pray that you just help us, Father. Help us to trust you and believe in you. Help us in a sin-fallen world, in our own state where we still battle with sin. Help us to ever remember that we're facing an eternity in a good way, Father. Facing eternity in a good way in which these old things have passed away and all things will truly be new. Something that's already started to happen for us that are in Christ and will be completed on that final last day. We thank you for your blessings to us. We thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. And would you cause your face to shine upon us and give us peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.